First, we will consider Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, and then we'll skip over to Acts chapter 15, the entire chapter, to chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, And they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider the matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you. And by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them, to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men from among the brothers, with the following letter, 
the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derb and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them, for observance, the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. As we will be witnessing the ordination of a new officer today, it will be wise if we revisit the six principles of Presbyterianism. Uh, The last time we approached this topic, we covered the first three principles, which were the following. First, officers are to be chosen by the people, that is, by the members of the church. Secondly, in the scriptures, the offices of bishop and elder are identical. And thirdly, in each church, there ought to be a plurality of elders. Today we will cover the last three of the six principles of Presbyterianism. And so the fourth principle is that ordination is the act of presbytery or a plurality of elders in a local church. The fifth principle is the privilege that we have 
to appeal the assembly of elders on every level of, of the church courts and their right to govern us. And the sixth principle is that Christ alone is the head of the church. So the fourth principle of Presbyterianism is that ordination is the act of the presbytery or a plurality of elders. There is a pattern in the scriptures that after certain men are appointed or elected to office, they are ordained to that office, which means they are solemnly set apart and designated to the office and its duties. Teaching elders are designated to teach, preach, pray, and administer the sacraments. Ruling elders are designated to rule and to teach whenever necessary. And deacons are designated to serve the temporal needs of the church. The ceremony of ordination goes back to when Aaron and his sons were set apart and ordained to the priesthood in Leviticus chapter 8. So this means that these men who have been called and set apart for the office are to be distinguished from the rest of the congregation. We see this in Acts chapter 15, especially how Paul, Barnabas, and some of the others, not the whole church, were appointed to bring a doctrinal question to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. Again, not to the whole church. In verse 4 and throughout Acts 15, there is a distinction between the apostles, elders, and the whole church. And there is debate about whether or not the whole church is speaking of every member or just a gathering of her representative leaders. But anyway, this goes against some models of church governance where there is an every member ministry where every member of the church shares the same roles and hold equal authority, where every member is, quote-unquote, anointed to the same tasks. But according to Scripture, it is certain men in the church that have been set apart and ordained for specific tasks. But unlike Leviticus eight, uh, chapter 8 and the Old Testament, the pattern of ordination in the New Testament is done with the laying on of hands. The laying on of hands has been associated with healing the sick. And when the apostles miraculously granted the Holy Spirit in the speaking of tongues for the sake of the expansion of the church, this means it wasn't meant to be repeated. Today we have the Holy Scriptures, and so the apostolic miraculous gifts have ceased in the church Yet the laying on of hands continues in the ceremony of ordination. The laying on of hands is not a miraculous act, but it is simply investing someone with the authority of an officer in the church. We see from the example of Scripture that in the ordination of deacons in Acts 6.6, in the ordination of Paul and Barnabas to the mission field in Acts 13 verse 3, and in the ordination of Timothy, in 1 Timothy 4.14, they were all ordained by the laying on of hands. But the question before us today is, by who? Who is to lay hands on the one who is being ordained? Is ordination the act of one individual person? Is it the act of one pastor? Or 
is it the act of a group? Well, we must understand the context of Scripture as well as our own context today. How was it done in Jesus' and the Apostles' day? And what is the pattern that has been left for us today? Uh, Because there is a difference between then and now. There is a difference between Jesus and us. Go figure. There is a difference between the apostles and us. There is a difference between the prophets and us. In the case of an inspired apostle who wrote down the word of God, they could ordain someone on their own. Right? Without a group. In the case of Jesus, Jesus appointed and ordained whomever he pleased. Like Paul, for instance. But at the same time, Paul had to give evidence to the other disciples whom Jesus ordained that he was one of them before he can receive the right hand of fellowship. He couldn't just assume authority, even though Jesus came to him directly. So we see a pattern here. But neither of these examples are true of us today. We don't have the authority, like Jesus when he walked this earth, nor are we inspired with new special revelation to ordain anyone as individuals. Nor can we set ourselves up as ordained ministers because we had a strong conviction or a vision from God or a leading of the Spirit. Even Paul had to be confirmed by others. There are people today who self-proclaim that they are apostles and prophets. Is that legitimate? I think not. The offices of apostle and prophet have ceased. So again, the question for us is, in the absence of Jesus, in in the absence of the inspired apostles, Who has the right to ordain? We see a pattern laid down for us in Scripture in a few key texts. First, in Acts 6.6, in the ordination of deacons, it says it was a group. It was the apostles that prayed and laid their hands on the seven men appointed. We see here, as an example, that even the apostles, some of whom were inspired, who had the authority to ordain individually, Ordained wherever possible as a group. Second, in Acts 13, verses 1 through 3, during a worship service, after the prophets received special revelation from the Holy Spirit to set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work of missions, it says that they, the prophets, laid their hands on them and sent them off. So it wasn't the work of one individual, but it was the work of a few individuals. And thirdly, in 1 Timothy 4.14, this is where there are similarities between the apostles, prophets, and us. And this is where the pattern for us is taken from. It says that in the ordination of Timothy, it was the council of elders, plural. Or in other words, the, the presbytery. The elders from the churches in the region that laid their hands on Timothy. So we have established, we are are not Jesus, we are not inspired apostles, we were not appointed by inspired apostles, 
So in the absence of these, we ordain as a group. After careful and sometimes rigorous examination and consultation with one another, a plurality of elders of the local church or the presbytery ordained by the laying on of hands. The fifth principle of Presbyterianism is that we have the privilege to appeal to the assembly of elders. In our denomination, there are different levels of this assembly. There is your local church session made up of elders appointed to a specific local church. There is the regional church or presbytery. And there is the national church or general assembly. And the assembly of elders have the right to govern in their corporate character. Now, what does this mean for us? What this means is if there is a problem in the local church, whether it is doctrinal or moral, every member has the right to appeal to the various levels of the courts of the church. Normally, you begin by appealing to your local session. After the session reviews, and if the problem persists, you can appeal to presbytery. And after going through all the procedures and the problem still persists, you can appeal to the General Assembly. And after the process of appeal, the Assembly of Elders have the right to proclaim a decree or a decision on the matter that you presented. And once the General Assembly pronounces its stance on the matter, if it gets that far, if it gets to GA, and they pronounce a stance, the local church, as well as the presbyteries, are expected to submit to its ruling. And if you don't agree still, you can continue to appeal. And the process keeps going on and on. But this is why it is important for both the session as well as members of the church to get to know not only the scriptures, not only our doctrinal standards, but also get to know our book of church order. Why? Because it is biblical. It is biblical. It is derived from scripture. Acts chapter 15. Though it is not the only example, but it is a prime example of where we get our order from. So let us go there. The chapter opens up with a problem. There is false teaching in the local church of Antioch. There were some who were teaching that circumcision was necessary for salvation. So Paul and Barnabas disagreed and debated with them. They tried to solve the problem on the local church level. But it wasn't settled there. So Paul, and Paul, Barnabas, and others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to present the question to the apostles and elders there. And there the apostles and elders considered the matter. Believe it or not, there was much debate. They didn't settle on the decision so quickly as we would think. In hindsight, we would say, obviously, the circumcision party was wrong. It should have been settled right then and there. But no, it was a process to get to that conclusion. And it was a process to deliver that decision to the other surrounding churches. Imagine the time this would have taken. I know some people who are frustrated with 
Presbyterian procedures. But it is no different than what we find in the scriptures. There is nothing fast and loose about church order and church governance. It can't be. It wasn't then and it's not now. And if you've ever been to a presbytery meeting or a general assembly, when something like this comes up, ministers will rise to give a speech in favor or against. And in Acts 15, there are three to four speeches speeches given against this false teaching on circumcision. And I'm sure there were probably more, but they weren't recorded here for us. Peter gives his speech of the free offer of the gospel to both Jew and Gentile, And how God is not a respecter of persons or their ethnicity. That was done away with at the cross. And the Holy Spirit was given to both Jew and Gentile. So he says to teach otherwise would to put God to the test. And to place a yoke on the neck of these Gentile disciples that no one else was able to bear. Not even the Jewish forefathers. And he closes with this. We believe we will be saved Through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they, the Gentiles, will. Then there is a second and possibly a third speech by Paul and Barnabas, speaking of the signs and wonders God had performed through men among the Gentiles as evidence that the promise of salvation was extended to them as well. Then James gives the final speech, quoting from Amos, chapter 9, verses 11 through 12. And he came to the conclusion and recommended that we should not trouble the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. Then, after this final speech, the assembly approved James's opinion and formed a delegation. The apostles, elders, and the whole church appointed Judas Barsabbas, not Iscariot, Silas, Paul, and Barnabas to go to Antioch to present a letter from the assembly of apostles and elders addressed to the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. This is like their presbytery at that time. In the letter, they charged those who were teaching falsely and they denied ever giving them authority to do so. And it was by the apostles and elders. So they appointed and sent Paul, Barnabas, Judas, and Silas with authority to declare their final decision that these false teachers should be ignored. And the letter contained the decree or decision reflecting the words of James. And the churches were expected to submit to this decision. Thankfully, it says that they did. They rejoiced because of the encouragement. It doesn't always work out this way. But our hope is that it does more times than not. And it doesn't end there. If you look at chapter 16, when Paul and Silas traveled to Derb and Lystra, in verse 4 it says that they delivered to them for observance the decision that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So it was expected that all the churches under the authority of this general assembly, I put that in quotes, would submit to this decision. And it says that through this decision, they were strengthened in the faith. 
So let us summarize some of the facts here that support this fifth principle. First, Paul and Barnabas had a dispute with the circumcision party in the church of Antioch. Secondly, the dispute was not settled in the place of origin, in the local church. Thirdly, so the matter was brought to an external church assembly composed of those who have been appointed to rule. It was brought to a higher court of the church, that is to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. For us, it would be presbytery or general assembly. Fourthly, the assembly met publicly to consider the question. Fifthly, they pronounced their decision. And sixthly, the churches in Antioch, Syria, Cilicia, Derb, and Lystra submitted to the decision. See, these events were not recorded for nothing. Right? Why all this detail about the process if it's not that important? It is an example for us to follow today. It is to show us how the church is to be governed decently and in order. And how the church is not to be governed by one man in a dictatorship, in one church, disconnected and isolated from all other churches. Nor is the church to be governed democratically by one congregation. But in the Bible, churches and their elders are connected to other churches and their elders, and all of these churches are expected to be held accountable to one another. There is no such thing as a rogue church in the Bible doing their own thing, disconnected from the rest. They reflect one another in doctrine and in practice. Now that's why you can go to pretty much any OPC church and notice that you haven't missed a beat. Right? It's the same, pretty much. Small differences, but pretty much the same. And there is a plurality of men from each of these churches appointed to assemble, to deliberate, and to declare a decision together. Now, there may have been lay members of the church present, but the doctrinal question wasn't presented to them. It was presented to the apostles and elders. Verse 2. Nowhere does it say that lay members were involved in gathering to consider the matter. Again, it was, a, it was presented to the apostles and elders. Verse 6. And the final decision reached and the letter was sent by the apostles and elders. We see this in verse 23 and in chapter 16, verse 4. If there were lay members present, all they did was attend Listen and concur with the final decision. But even that can be disputed. And this has been the same process that Bible-believing Presbyterians have followed to this very day. If there is a dispute, a doctrinal disagreement, a moral problem, we have the privilege to appeal and to refer these matters to the decision of an assembly. An assembly that is made up of wise elders, Devoted to the God of the scriptures. And in turn, that assembly has a right to meet, deliberate, decide, and demand obedience from all the churches to its decision in the Lord. So long as it is in the Lord. That's the major qualification. The major qualification is that we are not deviating from scripture. 
Finally, the sixth principle is that Christ alone is the head of the church. Nowhere in the New Testament do we find the civil magistrate or the worldly governments having any spiritual authority over the church. They had worldly or temporal authority over Christians, and Christians were individually called to submit to that worldly authority. Jesus said, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Here Jesus made a clear distinction between the temporal and the spiritual. But in no way is the church to bow the knee to Caesar and say that Caesar is Lord because Jesus is Lord. That was the line that was not to be crossed. So today there is no need for a Christian prince or a ruler to rule over the church. Would I really have to say that? There are people arguing for that today. That's why I say it. Okay. Believe it or not. There is no need for a union of church and state. There is no text to support an arrangement where a political figure has spiritual authority over the church. In our text in Acts 15, it was not Caesar nor any worldly leader who called the special meeting of apostles and elders. Just imagine the president. Not just the current one. Pick the one you like. Just imagine the president, the governor, or local officials calling for a meeting of presbytery and ordaining whomever they choose to office. Man, what a circus that would be. I don't care how many Bibles they wave around and how many times they say the Lord's name in public. They have no spiritual authority over the church. It is this principle that is at the foundation of the U.S. Constitution. The government does not hold the keys of the kingdom of God. They wield the sword. We each have our own lane. I always warn people, don't go to politicians for sound theology or spiritual leadership. Not because they're incompetent, but because their roles are different. They have been set apart for something else. Paul was an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through God. And nowhere does Paul seek out earthly rulers for some kind of earthly advantage for the church. Nowhere do the disciples seek earthly rulers to elevate the church to a favored position in society. Nowhere do any of the disciples compromise spiritual truth to gain favor from earthly rulers. And nowhere do they coerce the government to become Christian. It was all declarative and persuasive. In earthly or temporal matters, they considered it their duty to submit to earthly authority, Christian or not. They followed the laws of the land. In spiritual matters, they did not compromise the truth and they did not bow the knee to worship an earthly ruler. Much like Acts 15, God would have left us an example to follow, but he didn't. God had the means to convert whomever he wanted. He could have converted Caesar and appointed Caesar as head of the church and nation, but that would have contradicted the fact that Christ is head of the church. So there is no need for a Christian king to rule over the church to keep it in line. Also, just like there is no supreme earthly ruler as head of the church, there is no supreme officer in the church. 
In the Bible, there is no mention of a head bishop or elder who has more authority and power than the other elders. All elders hold equal authority. Christ is the head of the church, and in his absence, he left a plurality of leaders for the church. Notice from our text in Acts 15. The gathering to consider the doctrinal matter was made up of inspired apostles, uninspired apostles, and uninspired elders. And they are mentioned here as equally debating, deliberating, and making a final decision. If that was not the case, then right from the beginning, where it says, after much debate, why didn't Paul just get up and say, hey, the risen Christ met me on the Damascus Road? Then I was trained directly by Jesus himself for three years. So what I say goes. Or why didn't Peter get up and say, I am the rock on which Jesus is going to build his church. I have spoken ex cathedra, that is infallibly. Case closed. No, that's not how it went. The apostles and elders were gathered together with equal authority and equal voice to consider the matter, and they debated and deliberated. There were speeches delivered by inspired and uninspired men. Then they decided. And when they decided, get this, they chose James's words to use for the letter, not Peter's. That wouldn't happen today if the Pope was in the room. The apostles were distinct as they, along with the prophets, were the foundation of the household of God and Christ as the cornerstone. They were directly inspired by God to reveal special revelation. Peter was distinct as he was the leader, not in the sense that he was the head bishop or elder supreme over the others, but in the sense that he was the forerunner or the first to preach the gospel at Pentecost. Paul would later confront Peter and oppose him to his face. If he was the supreme bishop, if he was the first pope, I'm guessing that wouldn't happen. And nowhere does Peter claim this position for himself. And never mind the times that Paul submitted to the other elders and apostles and their decisions, like when he was given the right hand of fellowship. He submitted to their decision. We have an account at the end of Acts 15 where Paul and Barnabas had a disagreement and went their separate ways. These were two officers who held equal authority. One of them did not lose their faith that day. They just went their separate ways. Instead of a pope, the church is governed by a plurality of equals. Elders who hold equal authority to bind and loose on earth and in heaven. And the way we govern is not to lord our authority over those in our charge. And this is especially for our elder elect but it is to govern willingly as 
servants. And there is to be no interference from neither the state nor an elder who believes that he has some special authority over the others. And the church is called to submit to this government. I'm hoping in the coming months after we go through Job, I will be taking you through uh, the book, uh, the letter of Ephesians, and where Paul establishes right in chapter 1 that Christ is the head of the church. He says, He, that is God the Father, put all things under His, that is Christ's feet, and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Now, does this mean there is no more authority in the church, in this world? Does this mean it's me, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus, and my Bible? I don't need to listen to anybody else. I just listen to the leading of the Spirit? Well, no. In chapter 4, it speaks of Christ's ascension. And how when He ascended, He gave gifts to men. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. To build up the body in love until His return. This was a way forward to care for his people in his absence. We don't do this for nothing. And no one man can do it alone. No one man can set himself up in a position of authority. We saw how that it was a plurality of elders who laid their hands to ordain men to office. When there was an appeal... It went to a higher court of a plurality of apostles and elders. And these apostles and elders held equal authority to govern. So today, we ought to give thanks to our God and Father. That in His providence and care, He is going to add to our number this morning. And you are called to pray for, encourage And submit to his authority, which is derived from Christ and his holy word. Amen.